For Mervis Diamond Importers, I'm Ronnie Mervis. Nothing will flatter her more than Mervis Diamond ear studs. She'll wear them every day. It's the one essential she'll never take off. Mervis Diamond ear studs are classic. They're the ideal accessory. Our studs are brighter and flash more. That's my guarantee. It's the world-famous Mervis quality which creates that blaze of light. Mervis Diamonds are so brilliant, it's rude not to stare. Mervis proudly shows the most diamond ear studs. We offer all sizes and prices. Starting at just $500 for gorgeous half carats, our unrivaled collection includes studs from modest to truly grand. The amazing thing is the Mervis value, which makes our diamond ear studs so affordable. For the rest of time, you can trade up your Mervis diamond ear studs for larger, and we'll apply the full purchase price. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Just bring your studs back whenever you're in the mood and keep moving up. All you pay is the difference. Mervis Diamond Importers. For diamond ear studs she can't live without. Financing is available. For stores, go to MervisDiamond.com. Again, that's MervisDiamond.com or call 1-800-HER-LOVE. We started our company, Girls Who Do Interiors, before we even graduated design school. And we turned to Chase for Business to build along with us. They had everything from banking to payment acceptance to credit cards all in one place. And with the Chase mobile app, our business is wherever we are. It's made for business owners who build to inspire. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Real customers compensated. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank and a member of the IC. Same time, same station. It's an interview with Harold Perry who uh, portrayed uh, the great Gildersleeve originally. Originally, this uh, interview with Hal Perry was broadcast on January 26th, 1971. The following program is presented for your information and entertainment and is a document of radio's history. Recordings of this program have been placed in the archives of the Department of Telecommunications, University of Southern California, and the archives of the Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters in Hollywood. Transcribed. Well, good morning, good morning. And a special good morning to you, Bertie. You seem to feel pretty good this morning, huh? Never felt better in my life. That's because you're in love. <laughs> well, that may have something to do with it. You're awfully sweet. So are you. <laughs> <laughs> By George Eve, you're quite a girl. You Leroy, what are you doing with that trombone? Watch it! <laughs> Nearly knocked my hat off. It's most fascinating, Gilda. What instrument are you going to play? Well, I'm going to play the trombone. Mm-hmm. Knowing you, I thought it would be one of the wind instruments. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Gildersleeve, you're rather hard to please. Oh. <laughs> Petey, I've got to get something different, something original. Now, you've had plenty of experience at this Christmas thing. Mm, that's true. You've been buying Christmas presents for Mrs. Peavy for 20 years. Yes, I have. Well, certainly, after all that time, a man should know what it takes to please a woman. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> Reminiscing, I feel you near. Once more, you're my love of yesteryear. Just settle back and reminisce a bit. What do you say, huh? With a nostalgic nod toward the Atwater Kent, we now present Same Time, Same Station, a chronicle of broadcasting's first half century. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. From out of the past come the thundering hoofbeats of the great Gildersleeve. The Great Gildersleeve is brought to you by the Kraft Foods Company, makers of the famous cheese food, Velveeta. Well, there's a meeting of the Jolly Boys Club tonight, but there's one thing the Great Gildersleeve is a stickler for. No matter where he's going, he never lets anything interfere with that quiet hour he spends with his little family. Uh, what are you doing, Marjorie? Knitting a sock for Bronco. One sock? Pretty big. What's he going to do, wear it on both feet? 
<laughs> Let's see, four plus eleven. Doing your homework, Leroy? No, figuring out how many days I don't have to go to school between now and nineteen fifty. Oh my! <laughs> four days at Thanksgiving, eleven at Christmas, only fifteen. Yes, uh... Wonder why there has to be a million more school days than there are holidays. What a mean way to treat little kids. Leroy, what's the matter with you in school? Nothing the matter with me. School's dull, that's all. Now, my boy, school isn't dull. It's a lot of fun. Are you kidding? Algebra, history, hygiene. I'm not referring to your studies, young man. There's all sorts of interesting activities in school that can make your work seem easier. What do you do during recess? I eat lunch. You... <laughs> Why don't you participate in the sports? You didn't even go out for touch football. Oh, I can't run fast enough. Well, what about the folk dancing they have at school? You can run fast enough for that. Folk dancing? Duh. They wanted Leroy to join the glee club last year, but oh no. Glee club. That's moldy. Leroy. <laughs> you aren't trying to find interesting things at school. You're fighting it. Let's have a little change of attitude, my boy. Yeah. Christmas is coming, you know. And I have a feeling that Santa Claus will be a little more generous to boys who are interested in school. You think so, Unc? Well, I wouldn't doubt it. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> That's a boy. Let's see. Ten plus twenty-four equals thirty-four. Yeah, you see, Marjorie? Leroy's more interested in his homework already. Homework? I'm figuring how many days it is till Santa Claus gets generous. Oh. <laughs> Well, I, I have been uh, connected with microphones since they were invented, frankly. When I was a kid in Oakland, uh, I was singing in, uh, in motion picture theaters with orchestras as a 13-year-older. And I was known as the Oakland Tribune's Boy Caruso. And they had one of the first radio stations in the East Bay called KLX. And then uh, uh, there was a 10th Avenue Baptist Church that had a station called KTAB, which is now KSFO in San Francisco, which is quite a large station. And then KGO, which was, later became ABC. Uh, that was a General Electric station. Uh, I was in a drama group. After I quit singing for a while, because my voice went from a soprano to a, to a baritone, I took some drama lessons and I got interested in, in the theater. And I started playing some parts. And Bernice Berwin, who was in was Hazel in One Man's Family, uh, was a college student then. And she had this little group. This is about 1926, 25. Well, in the meantime, I did. I alternated between radio. It was just coming into the, coming to the point where they were paying, you know, for radio, and uh, and the theater, and and going to school and all that sort of thing. But in 1929, uh, a, a friend of mine, by the name of Ted Maxwell, very well known in radio in, up in Oakland. Uh, had been a former theatrical producer. He hired me as a singer and actor. Well, he called me the triple threat because he knew my father was in the dairy business and he figured I was pretty good with a broom, too. <laughs> we got to throw that in. Anyway, I, I went to work for NBC under contract in 1929 and I remained with NBC in San Francisco until 1935 when I moved to Chicago. I'd heard about this lush thing in Chicago, you know. Oh, boy. It was the uh, center at the time. Soap operas and kid shows and, of course, a great many dramas, you know, like the First Nighter show and One Man's... Uh, not One Man's Family, that was San Francisco. Uh, Grand Hotel and, uh, oh, there were a great many other shows, and I can't remember them now. But it was a great, it was a great uh, center for anybody that was versatile, and I... Uh, and I say this humbly, I uh, not only could sing, but I was pretty good at doubling, you know. And I played seven parts on the Tom Mix show. Come on, boy! Shredder, for your breakfast, start the day off shining bright. Gives you lots of cowboy energy, with a flavor that's just right. It's delicious and nutritious, bite-sized and ready to eat. Take a tip from Tongo and tell your mom Shredded Ralston can't be beat. The Tom Mix Ralston Straight Shooters bring you action, mystery, and mile-a-minute thrills in radio's biggest Western detective program. Tonight you're about to hear another episode in a baffling mystery. Secret Mission. The show had been done in New York, and they sent us a recording to sort of mimic some of the voices that had been done back there. They'd moved it to Chicago. So I inherited the oh, little Chinese and I and your father was cook. Lilu, ha, 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 ha. He was Tom's cook. 
And then there was Bertie, who was an Englishman friend of Tom's. Uh, he came uh, from Canada, I believe. And there was um, Henry Akins. Henry Akins was a, a mean old cuss, a kind of a merchant around town. He was always getting into trouble with Tom Mix. And then there was Mike Shaw. He was a sheriff. I find that was my fourth part. I played uh, for Mike Shaw. Then I started doing a villain called... Um, uh, Hog Barrett, he was a real rough one, but the kids loved him, but we had to get rid of him anyway, and he was accidentally shot or something, so we had to bring his brother back, his name was Shotgun Barrett, and I played him with a lisp, so it was the same guy, only he had a lisp, and the kids loved him, but I did that, oh, I also did an Indian chief, you know, traditional how, you know, but that was, yeah, that was my seventh part, and, uh, occasionally, uh, when the sound effects man had too much to do, I also doubled as the dog. We had a little dog. <laughs> and I hadn't done the dog once on Arthur and Annie, so I was pretty good at doing dogs, you know. <laughs> that was something that came after I'd kind of proved myself around Chicago as being versatile. I went to work right for NBC, though, in a show called Flying Time, which was a, uh, a show for children uh, about aviation. And uh, a very famous man was the star of it, um, um, Roger... Oh, that's great. I can't even remember his name. Uh, he was an aviator here in Los Angeles and used to carry a lion with him called Gilmore. And uh, somebody will remember his name. I can't. He had a very peculiar name. And then I did a show with Betty Winkler about newspapers. Was, the woman who wrote it was a former newspaper woman, and she even had real names in the thing, and we almost got sued there for a while. She didn't think there was anything to be sued about, but it worked out all right. And I even did some narration work. Uh, I worked on a, on a program uh, called True McFadden Tales. I was the second second announcer who set the story. And uh, I worked on uh, First Nighter and Grand Hotel and the Princess Pat Players. And I was with Don McNeil, who had uh, the breakfast thing. I was on a Monday night show with him. And a fellow by the name of Bill Thompson, who was with Fibber McGee and recently passed on here, he and I did something entirely different, something had never been done before. We were acrobats on radio. We were called the Lorenzo Brothers. And all we did was, you know, oh, look out to Luigi, you know, you step on my ear, you're going up, go easy, you know. We did all, all this dialogue. <laughs> when Bill had to go away on a trip, I hired a fellow by the name of Jay Novello, who's a quite well-known picture actor now, and he was a real Italian, and we had quite a little act. It was very cute. We were supposedly Europeans, and, you know, we were performing for radio, and we got an awful lot of mail on it, you know, because it had never been done before, you know. We worked before a studio audience, of course, and we even had smocks and berets you know, with our, for our costumes. The Johnson Wax Program. The makers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's self-polishing glow coat present Fibber McGee and Company with Jim Jordan as Fibber, Donald Novis, the Four Notes, and Billy Mills Orchestra. The show opens with Of Thee I Sing. When they first started this show in Chicago... Uh, Jim used to kind of dress the part, because he was, he was younger looking, you see, than actually than he was supposed to be. And Molly used to wear a, kind of a house dress and give you a hat, and then they, of course, got away from that. By the time I was on the show, which was 37, they'd been on a couple of years and were coming into popularity, so they, you know, they raced all that monkey business. And they used to double a lot of characters, too. Uh, Jim uh, did uh, Mort Toops, who was a real funny character, and she used to do Mrs. Wearybottom. And uh, the woman was always so tired, you know, besides Molly. And then she also did a little girl, Teeny, which she kept till the end. I mean, uh, that was a great character. Well, actually, that was all they really doubled, you know. And then we doubled a lot. Bill Thompson uh, was on the, he did four or five characters on the show. He did Nick DePopolis and, and Liar Boomer, you know. And then, and then he did Wallace Wimple with one of that sweetie face. And I did the Chinese called Gooey Fooey, the laundry man. I did the Perry, the Portuguese piccolo player. I, uh, some of my ancestors are of Portuguese descent, so Don Quinn, who wrote the show, thought that was very funny. Then I established this one voice that later became Gildersleeve, and he was known under several things in the beginning. Some of the tape collectors uh, occasionally come up with shows where I was George Gildersleeve. I was also George somebody else. 
And I did an old Englishman. I have a, a thing about a safari uh, when Fibber was going into it. And I did an old Englishman. Come in. Oh, hi, Lord Bingham. I'm glad to see you again. Now have a chair. Thanks, I have one. Oh, you got two? Oh, no. <laughs> that was cigars, wasn't it? <laughs> well, what did you decide, Bingham? You think I'd make a good partner for a big game expedition? I most certainly do, McGee. I most certainly do. Oh, fine. There's one thing I must impress upon you. What's that, Lord Bingham? Well, McGee, it's a rather delicate subject. Do you understand that I can't have anybody with me who doesn't measure up to my own standard of cool courage? My calmness in moments of danger. Why, sure. Remember, I won't always be there to protect you. Oh, I understand that, bud. I can take care of myself, I can. Splendid. We must depend upon each other in emergencies, you know. Oh, absolutely. Two brave hearts that beat as one. <laughs> That's what I always say. <laughs> Look out, me. There he is. Hey, there's that mouse. What? Look out. Oh, my goodness, a mouse. Let me out of here. Help! Help! I say, McGee, is that you in this closet with me? Yes, it is, Bingham. Where are you? It's dark in here. I'm up on the top shelf here behind the hat. <laughs> it's very uncomfortable, too. <laughs> Where are you, McGee? I'm hanging on two hooks with my feet in the umbrella stand. <laughs> <laughs> kind of cramped, but I can take it. <laughs> stout fellow, McGee, stout fellow. You know, I'm looking forward to our trip to Africa. Our trip? You, you mean you're taking me? Why, certainly, my dear chap. I find you a very valuable man in the crisis. Huh? How so? If it hadn't been for you, I never would have found this closet. <laughs> then the character became known as George Gildersleeve. For Mervis Diamond Importers, I'm Ronnie Mervis. Once again, Mervis sets the standard for jewelry. You've got to see our new collection. Straight Row Diamond Tennis Bracelets remain a favorite. They're simple and elegant. Our neck pieces are so sexy, they're almost illegal. Imagine a perfect diamond, suspended from a delicate gold chain, resting securely in the small of her throat. What a beautiful, sensuous gift. Our magnificent diamond bands will melt her heart. The Mervis Diamonds are ferociously brilliant. They seem to leap out at you. The designs are daring and rare. You'll find them at one place only, Mervis. And as for earrings, Mervis proudly shows the newest diamond ear studs, dangles, hoops, and anything else you can imagine. When you really love her, show it with Mervis Diamond Jewelry, the best there is. Two philosophies unite everything at Mervis. The finest quality and legendary Mervis value. The prices are almost too good to be true. Come see for yourself. She'll thank you forever. Mervis Diamond Importers. Financing is available. Go to MervisDiamond.com. Again, that's MervisDiamond.com or call 1-800-HER-LOVE. It got real big. And after that, why, uh, they didn't think that George Gildersleeve didn't really sort of go, you know. The Gildersleeve was great. That was a good name. So I was living on a street called Throckmorton Place in Chicago. And this is how it became Throckmorton P. Gildersleeve. P, of course, obviously for Perry, see. The first night I used it, of course, it got a big laugh. And it also happened to be the night that we were a little, uh, 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 we were short, you know, script was a little short, and uh, the director gave us the well-known signal to spread, you know, and McGee and I were up there alone, we were at the end of the show, and we were closing the show, so he looked at me, and I looked at him, we started ad-libbing a little bit, and that was the first night I ever said little chum to him, you know, because he was irking me, but I was attempting to keep my temper, you know, and I said little chum, you know, and then I finally threw in this old laugh, which I'd used in San Francisco. Never used it in Chicago. You know, I said, little chub. <laughs> and the audience in the studio laughed for 30 seconds. And the director looked at me, you know, and uh, I looked at Jim Jordan, and he, he gave me the nod, so I threw in another one. <laughs> then, after a few things like that, why, the director started giving us the speed signal. We almost didn't get off the air in time. <laughs> well, next week, Throckmorton was a very important character. <laughs> Well, I started with Fred McGee in 37, and this incident I'm telling you about it was in 38. Okay. And then in 39, they came back to California to do some pictures, and uh, I was sort of instrumental in talking him into staying in California. So that's how it happened. We all came home and all bought houses in Encino. In 41, the summer of 41, or prior to the summer of 41, the advertising agency said, how would you like to build a show to replace Fred McGee and Molly for the summer? 
because I was kind of the number one stooge at that time, see? So I said, well, okay. He said, we'll give you all the help we can. We'll give you a writer and music and Harlow Wilcox to announce that, you know, and so on. So there was a writer by the name of Leonard Levinson who was assistant to Don Quinn on the show. So Levinson and I went to work, and uh, I ha- first I sketched out an idea that I had about Gillisley being a bachelor, and he was going to another town to, to take over uh, the affairs of a niece and a nephew. Now, I was raising a niece and a nephew in my real life. I was married, however, but I was raising a niece and a nephew, and this is where I got the idea. I even had a, 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 a colored housekeeper at the time, or a nurse for the children, whose name was Bertie. You know, and this is where we borrowed that. So we were in such a hurry, this fellow and I, Levinson, that we sat down and wrote this show, you know. And then we had to have an opposition uh, character, an opposite character like Fibber. Uh, so we got a fellow by the name of Judge Hooker. And we had a kind of a nasty voice, you know. And he happened to be in the first episode. We had Billy Mills' orchestra. We had uh, Harlow Wilcox. We barred him seeing Billy Mills from the show. We had Leroy and Marjorie and Judge Hooker. Peavy wasn't in the show yet. And we had Bertie. It was a cute show. Well, the show was auditioned for Johnson to replace for McGee and Molly. And everybody liked it but Johnson. And he said, no, I don't, I don't like it. Yeah. Everybody liked it but him. He said, I want to buy Ransom Sherman. I've been listening to him here in Chicago. Well, he bought Ransom Sherman, and I was delighted because there was, there was a little feeling there about me, you know, doing my own show and all that sort of thing. So I went away on a vacation. I was gone about a month, and I got a, after the show went off, and I got a call from Chicago saying, well, we didn't sell you for the summer but we're going to sell you, we've already sold you, if you'll accept it, for the fall, for craft. <laughs> so here I go, you know, uh, on the air for Kraft Foods in September 1941. We'd auditioned the show in May, and the collector recently found it, by the way, and he found the original audition, and I didn't, I didn't even have a copy of it. And it's very funny, because with the, with the exception of the fact that it had Johnson's Wax commercials on it, it was practically the same show that we did. For the, uh, you know, for the initial show. Yes. Yes, I see, Mr. McGee. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you put me straight on that. Yeah, see, I knew my pal would set me in right. That's a very good point. I wouldn't have missed this chat for the world. Leroy, I want you to meet McGee one of these days. There's one of nature's noblemen. Oh, yes. This conversation will influence my decision a lot, Mr. McGee. Ah, uh, thank goodness. I guess you've made my mind up for me, Skipper. Uh, uh, ooh. <laughs> Hold the phone a second. I'll tell him. Gildersleeve. Uh, yes, Judge? Gildersleeve, I've decided to rescind that $50,000 bond. Uh, I knew that would happen if you spoke to my little chum. Yes. After talking to McGee, I'm going to make that bond $100,000. What? Give me that telephone. Hello? Hello? You're a hard man, McGee. So I went on the air for Kraft, and I was on for him for 11 seasons. And, uh, and then uh, we came to a small impasse regarding ownership and uh, a great many other things. And so uh, I was kind of tired, you know, and, and, and I had a little money and I invested some of it rather wisely. So uh, uh, I just checked out, and the fellow by the name of Lord Waterman did it. We called it Summerfield, USA, you know. It was obviously a Middle Western uh, locale, you know. And we chose Summerfield because there, there was, I think there was only two Summerfields, or maybe one other, uh, a real one. And we didn't want to get involved, you know, so that's why uh, we chose the profession that we did, uh, the water commissioner, because that was sort of an indefinite thing, too. Uh, there are a great many water commissioners, and we found out later because the mail came in, you know. But it seemed like it was the one job that you could poke a little fun at, and nobody was going to get too upset about it. It was either dog catcher or water commissioner. The Great Gildersleeve <laughs> is played by Harold Perry. It is written by John Whedon and Sam Moore. The music is by Jack Meekin. This is John Lang speaking for the Kraft Cheese Company. Well, Bertie was played by Lillian Randolph, who was a distinguished Negro actress. Uh, she has a daughter by the name of Barbara, who's a coming singer. But Bertie, uh, I mean, Lillian also played uh, um, Madam Queen in Amos and Andy, you know. Her sister was also uh, Amanda Randolph, who did uh, the Danny Thomas uh, housekeeper for so long. And then... Uh, Lorene Tuttle was the was the original uh, Margie, 
Marine is a distinguished actress, you know. But she, uh, we, we had a studio audience, of course, and Lorene uh, was a little embarrassed, you know. She was in her early 30s or mm-hmm. something like that, and she was playing a 17-year-old girl. Um, Walter Tetley, Leroy, is a man uh, about 55 today, and he still has uh, something of that voice. Marvelous. I did a commercial for him with him recently for somebody, and he was Leroy, and I was Gildersleeve, you know, <laughs> other names. And uh, uh, then there was uh, Judge Hooker, played by Earl Ross. He's gone. And there was Arthur Q. Bryan, who played Floyd the Barber. That was a, a well-known character. He also was um, Dr. Gamble on Fibber McGee, well-known character. Then there was uh, uh, Ken Christie, who did the chief of police. He was a real, had a real low voice. He's gone, too. Peavy, uh, which was a character that didn't come in until we'd been on the air about three years, was Richard Legrand. He's gone, and uh, he... Uh, he outlasted a great many of them, and he died about the age of 93, not very long ago. I had an idea that uh, when I first started building the show, that voices that charmed you or voices that irritated you were things that became successful. And that's why Judge Hooker was playing that way. And then Gildersleeve, of course, sang everything, you know. And he was a pleasant sort of a person to listen to. And then there was Leela, you remember, that was the Southern Widow. You probably heard that's Shirley Mitchell. She played it once. And then Una Merkel, who was in pictures, did Southern Girls. And she played it once when Shirley was off having a baby or something. I've forgotten now. And, uh, and then uh, Eve, the school teacher, who was a, a dignified sort of a character, was played by B. Benaderet, right from the very beginning, who later became a television star, Petticoat Junction. And... Uh, uh, we had Gail Gordon on the show for a long time. He played Bullard, the stuffy neighbor next door, you know. His eldest son is now the newscaster on Channel 2 here. Um, no, don't tell me again. Not the newscaster, the, the sports. He was an umpire at one time, too. Can't remember his name. Very good friend. You hate me. He hears it. <laughs> Somebody's at the Jolly Boys Club. Sounds like Floyd working over that new song I gave him. Oh, brother, he's really working it over, too. Eh? Hi, Commissioner. Hello, Floyd. I was just amusing myself the fellows got here. You're a little late tonight. Well, I had to have a talk with Leroy. Well, yes? The boy just isn't taking the proper interest in school, Floyd. Oh, well, you don't have to worry about him, Commissioner. A lot of kids come into my barber shop, and Leroy's got as fine a head for his age as any kid I ever worked on. He's got his bumps in the right place. I'm not worried about Leroy's bumps, Floyd. I'm trying to get him interested in outside activities. Those things are good for a person. Sure they are. Sure. You know how much the Jolly Boys mean to us? Say, where is everybody? Search me. We ain't had 100% attendance in months. Last week, Peavy and the judge was both missing. That's right. And a week before, Chief Gates skipped it to play pinochle with a prisoner. Yeah. The club's dying on its feet, Commissioner. Now, Floyd, this little group has held together for a good many years. Remember our slogan, all for one and one for all. Well, I for one wish all would show up. While we're waiting, let's run through the song, huh? Just the two of us? Uh, certainly, Floyd. You play and I'll sing. Okay. Take it, Commissioner. I love those dear hearts and gentle people who live in my hometown because those dear hearts and gentle people will never ever let you down they re- you're letting us down tonight yeah floyd they read the good book from friday till monday that's how the weekend goes i've got a dream house I'll build there one day with picket fence and rambling roads. I feel so welcome each time that I return that my happy heart keeps laughing like a clown. I love the dear heart and gentle people who live in love in my hometown. Well... Well, how's that, Floyd? Sounds great with a quartet. Yep. 
Where are all those dear hearts and gentle people that were supposed to show up? Well, if Floyd... this keeps up, I got a good notion to rent this room out. Rent it out? A guy was in the other day wanting to open a walk-up and save two-pants suit store. What? <laughs> sure, he even offered to give me a two-panter if I'd sign the lease. Floyd, you wouldn't toss out four friends for two pairs of pants. No, I guess I wouldn't. Gee, this meeting's a dud. Let's go home, Commissioner. Uh, they'll show up, Lloyd. Come on, let's run through the song again. Okay, and this time I'll sing. Well, uh, uh, I love the dear hearts and gentle. Lloyd! You're right. <laughs> the meeting is a dud. Let's go home. <laughs> We tried to make it as real as possible. We we got our comedy uh, from the characters as well as the uh, as the story, and uh, and we always and we had excellent writers. Um, in the second year, we had John Whedon and Sam Moore, and they stayed with us for a long time, and they were uh, they really built the show up to the point where it was a fine show. We even experimented with the idea of not using a studio audience, but we had to give that up. It really uh, it. Just didn't, if we had started that way, it might have been all right. But after we had been on with the studio audience, uh, there was quite a disappointment, you know. I remember it scared me to death after I heard the first one without an audience. So, oh, as you commented a minute ago, it was, uh, it was, um, it wasn't a raucous show, you know. The comedy, the characters were, were a little bit uh, offbeat, like even Gildersleeve was a little, and then having the laugh, <laughs> which was always good for the situation. We tried not to overdo that too much because it could get to the point where it would uh, get a little stale on us. And so the character uh, and I had an idea about this fellow. That when he was happy, he sounded like he was singing all the time. And then, of course, when he was he got a little upset, why, uh, he lowered the voice, you know. And there are a great many people still doing that sort of thing in television, a couple of friends of mine. <laughs> we won't mention any names. <laughs> but it's a good attack. And probably I'm not the uh, the original, believe me. I'm sure it was done before me. There was an actor by the name of Burton Churchill, a great motion picture actor, that always had a little uh, <clears throat> habit of lowering his voice when he got menacing. He talked in sort of a monotone. So I think I unconsciously stole that from him because I worked with him in the theater. You'd sort of feel that sort of thing as you rehearsed. Occasionally, uh, the writer might throw in a little... Uh, a uh, little uh, laugh here, you know, or a pause here, to make a point, and uh, and we we would take that into consideration, but uh, uh, we always didn't obey that. I mean, it was up it was up to uh, up to me and the producer and the writers to sit in on a final conference and work things out. When we first went on, we went on Sundays. Uh, matter of fact, my my opposition was Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, frightened me to death, and. Uh, Fortunately, we uh, we passed her in the rating the second year, and then uh, I was moved to Wednesday. We had done so well in the Sunday spot. Uh, I was just before Jack Benny on Sunday, following the Catholic hour, and this was a little rough because the Catholic hour had a very bad rating. Catholics, I guess, didn't even listen to it. I'm a Roman Catholic, so it's all right for me to say that. But it had a point two rating, and we had to go in there and get an eight or nine, or we were off the air. And then in came Jack Benny with a 12, and he was a hero, and we'd already... For Mervis Diamond Importers, I'm Ronnie Mervis. Once again, Mervis sets the standard for jewelry. You've got to see our new collection. Straight row diamond tennis bracelets remain a favorite. They're simple and elegant. Our neck pieces are so sexy, they're almost illegal. Imagine a perfect diamond, suspended from a delicate gold chain, resting securely in the small of her throat. What a beautiful, sensuous gift. Our magnificent diamond bands will melt her heart. The Mervis diamonds are ferociously brilliant. They seem to leap out at you. The designs are daring and rare. You'll find them at one place only, Mervis. And as for earrings, Mervis proudly shows the newest diamond ear studs, dangles, hoops, and anything else you can imagine. When you really love her, show it with Mervis diamond jewelry, the best there is. Two philosophies unite everything at Mervis. The finest quality and legendary Mervis value. The prices are almost too good to be true. Come see for yourself. She'll thank you forever. Mervis Diamond Importers. Financing is available. Go to MervisDiamond.com. Again, that's MervisDiamond.com or call 1-800-HER-LOVE. 
Feel the woe with Listerine at BJ's. You can save $2.50 now on Listerine products like Total Care Anti-Cavity Fluoride Fresh Mint Mouthwash or Cool Mint Pocket Packs Fresh Breath Strips at your nearest BJ's location. Experience the feeling of a million germs zapped in seconds with Listerine. Discount available through December 24th. Save now only at BJ's. We got nine for him. Right. So we were moved out, and we went to Wednesday at 8 o'clock, and that's where the show remained for, for a long time. We had to do one show for the coast because we weren't allowed to tape. Well, there, there was no tape, but, but we weren't allowed to make recordings. Sometimes the last show, which was done for the coast at 8 o'clock, was a little different than the first show. Occasionally, the actors would go out and have a cocktail, you know, come back and give an entirely different reading. One of them didn't even show up one night, and I had to go on in Dublin. And it scared the audience to death. I never did that again. You are listening to Same Time, Same Station on KRLA, Pasadena. NBC, corner of Sunset and Vine, which is now uh, uh, some savings and loan organization. Oh, uh, <coughs> I'm to me, busy all day. I haven't had a chance to check with the Jolly Boys. wonder why they weren't at the meeting last night. Oh, well, if they're not interested in holding the little group together... I don't know why I should be. That you, Miss Gillsleeve? Yes, Bertie. Mr. Gillsleeve, are you going to be surprised? I am. <laughs> Guess what Leroy brought home this afternoon? Uh, a cow? <laughs> <laughs> well, take your choice to be the cow or a trombone. Oh, I almost hope it's a cow. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Ladies and gentlemen. Leroy. What's this? Featuring Leroy Forrester on the slide trombone. Oh, my goodness. Forward, march! You, uh, Leroy, what are you doing with that trombone? Oh, watch it. <laughs> Nearly knocked my hat off. Here, huh? Leroy, I thought we were going to keep that upstairs. Hello, Uncle Moore. Hello, Marjorie. Leroy, where did you get that infernal thing? I got it at school. Well, take it back. But, Uncle, I saw the band leader and he let me in the school band. That band leader must be crazy. He is not. He's a professor. (laughs) Leroy, why would anybody as smart as the professor give you a slide trombone? Gosh, Uncle, you told me to get interested in something at school. I don't... That's right. I did, didn't I? Of course, I run out of breath pretty easy. Well, don't strain yourself, my boy. That's enough practicing today. Put the horn away. Yeah, I'll stand it here in the corner. I want to go study anyway. You want to go study? Yeah, you can't play in the school band unless you've got passing grades. See you later, Uncle. All right, my boy. Well, I've got to put a cake in the oven. It's ain't going to be no encore. <laughs> yes, Who'd think a trombone could make Leroy take such an interest in school? <laughs> Let's have a look at this thing. <laughs> Looks like they've been playing hockey with it. <laughs> Wonder if I can get anything out of a trombone. I'll try the scale. <laughs> Made it. <laughs> well, I might take this down to the Jolly Boys some night. Say, wonder if we could organize a little band. Might be just the thing to get them interested in the club again. Look what it did for Leroy. Sure, why not? Floyd plays the piano. Peavy plays the violin. A little. And I could get to be pretty hot on this trombone. Well, Leroy actually brought me up, you know. Uh, this, this man, Gildersleeve, uh, uh, who thought he was raising a couple of children, they were really raising him, you know. And uh, uh, that was the idea. And Gildersleeve, uh, as I always said, Gildersleeve was not to be mistaken for a tall man. He was a little man who thought he was a tall man. That's, that's, that was my whole idea, you know, was that he was a slightly, uh, uh, you know, undersized, and he always wanted to, he, you know, he'd wear the, the shoes that would make him taller and, and all that sort of thing. So um, uh, there were a great many things wrong with Gildersleeve. He was pretty childish, you see. And then, of course, I had more problems than anybody else in the family. I was the problem child all the way through. That was where we got all our fun, you know.
Well, it seems the Jolly Boys Club has been falling apart lately. To stimulate interest, the great Gildersleeve has decided to organize a band and lure the strays back into the fold. And it so happens that Mr. Peavy is one of the strays. Well, hello, Peavy. Hello, Mr. Gildersleeve. What can I do for you today? Peavy, I missed you at the Jolly Boys Club the other night. I'm sorry I couldn't make it. You gentlemen have a pleasant evening at the club? Peavy, there wasn't anybody there but Floyd and me. And frankly, I'm a little disturbed about our attendance. That's all? Certainly. <laughs> right at the holiday season when we should be getting together, we seem to be drifting apart. Well, I hadn't thought of that. Peavy, do you still have your violin? Oh, yes. Do you play it? Oh, my, yes. At night, after we've done the dishes, I often play and Mrs. Peavy hums. Yes. Good. Uh, I've got a surprise for you, Peavy. I'm going to organize a Jolly Boys band. Okay. A Jolly Boys band. There are five of us. We'll have a little quintet. Uh, you'd be interested in attending the Jolly Boys meetings if we played music, wouldn't you, Peavy? Well, yes. But uh, who'd be playing in the band, Mr. Gildersleeve? Why, all of us. My, my. <laughs> now, all I have to do is see Judge Hooker. <laughs> As Guy Lombardo says... We'll make the sweetest music this side of heaven. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. What do you think of the idea, Judge? It's most fascinating, Gildy. What instrument are you going to play? Well, I'm going to play the trombone. Mm-hmm. Knowing you, I thought it would be one of the wind instruments. <laughs> All right, Judge, if you're not interested... Oh, I am. I haven't had my trusty flute out of the trunk in years. A flute? Hey, that's just what we need. Splendid. Judge, you get your flute out of the mothballs and be at the Jolly Boys Club this evening. I'll be glad to, Gildy. Have you done anything about arrangements? Why, certainly. I'm making a... Arrangements? Musical arrangements for the individual instruments. Well, I thought we'd just improvise. Oh, we can't do that, Gildy. Each musician must have his own music. Now, why don't you select something suitable, go down to the music store and see Yasha Mitz. Yasha Mitz? You mean the fellow with the goatee? Yeah. He makes arrangements for a very small fee. Well, if you think that's necessary... Absolutely. I'd suggest something simple like Waltz of the Flowers by Tchaikovsky. Waltz of the Flowers? It's wonderful for a small group, Gildy. Mm-hmm. All right, Judge. Then the flutes go. Please, please, Judge. Not on your fountain pen. You're getting ink all over your chin. Oh. Well, you get the idea. Yeah, definitely. Imagine an old goat playing a flute. Hey, put the cokes in that tub of ice, Phoebe. Yeah, well. Hi, George. It certainly is good to have all the jolly boys here at the club again. Say, where's Hooker? He'll be along. Well, I'll pass out the music. Floyd, here's the piano part. Okay, Commissioner. Peavy, here's the part for violin. Well, it says first violin. And only violin. (laughs) (laughs) Chief, you get the drum arrangement. Thank you, Commissioner. Chief, you've got a hole in your drum. Well, we used to play at the baseball games. Foul ball. (laughs) Well, it doesn't hurt the tone any. Listen. (laughs) Sounds like you singing, Chief. Uh... Hey, is this the kind of stuff we're going to play? What's the matter with it, Floyd? Waltz of the flowers. Whoop! I'm a butterfly flitting from flower to flower. <laughs> Floyd, if it's good enough for Tchaikovsky, it's good enough for you. Yeah, well, I'll soon tell you. Is that the way it goes, Floyd? Well, that's the gist of it. If I played all the notes wrote down here, I'd have to be an octopus. <laughs> all right, Floyd. You all tuned up, Peavy? I think so. Good. Let's hear the first violin part. Very well. Yeah. You better rosin up, Peavy. (laughs) 
But it is very good, though, Pete. Mm, thank you. What's that? Sounds like a flute. Must be the judge. Hi, Judge. Good evening, gentlemen. I'm the spirit of 76. That looks like the flute that played it. <laughs> yeah, the judge looks like the fellow who played the flute. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, gentlemen. Gildy, did you have the arrangements made? Yeah, here's what you're supposed to play, Judge. Thank you. Say, Commissioner, I've been looking at this music, and the drum doesn't have anything to do until page three. It's a waltz, Chief. Just beat waltz time. Well, shall we begin? I know the piece very well myself. Yeah, let's take a run over it. All right. Now, everybody start together, please. One, two. <laughs> what was that for? Wait for the rest of us, Chief. Well, fellas, the drum has to start it all. We're not playing in a parade, Chief. The flute has the opening passage. Now, on my music, it don't. Floyd, you have the piano part. Now, let's oh. play. All right, we'll start again. One, two... glasses on, Hooker, you were way off. I was way off. You weren't even playing in the same key. What? Now, just a minute. If you ask me, there wasn't anybody playing in the same key. Floyd, as a piano player, you're a good barber. Yeah, well, you ain't no Gabriel on that horn, either. Well, if I have to be the only musician in this club... Fellas, I don't like to complain, but can't we play something that isn't so artistic? Believe me, Chief, there's nothing artistic about the way you pound that drum. <laughs> Judge, one side's got a hole in it. If you ask me, I think it'd sound better if it had a hole in both sides. <laughs> oh, now, Mr. Gildersleeve. Yeah. As I'm concerned, if I play the flute at all, I'm going to play it as Tchaikovsky intended. All right, you old goat, go play it with Tchaikovsky. <laughs> oh, well, if that's the way you feel... Oh, now, fellas. I at least play the notes. With that trombone, you shouldn't be in an orchestra, Gildy. You should be selling fish. Oh, <laughs> you guys read the music. That's what you tell me. Now, fellas, that's all. I'm a bunch of musicians. I was playing it. You guys got ten ears, that's all. Floyd. Fellas, fellas, well, let's all be jolly boys. I, for one, no longer care to be a jolly boy. Where's my flute case? That's probably what you've been playing on. <laughs> My trombone. I'm going home. Me too. I hate to see this happen, fellas, after all these years. Too bad. <laughs> well, who's going first? You go first, Judge. This is the end of the Jolly Boys. No, you go first, Gildy. What do we have to go for? Well, everybody wants to break up the club. Not me. Wasn't my idea. And don't look at me. <laughs> I'm quite sure I'm not to blame. Who started all this, anyway? Oh, let's quit kidding ourselves. This is the best meeting we ever had. Well, it has been rather lively. Sure. <laughs> let's forget the band and go back to singing. Yeah, that suits me. <laughs> my baritone is better than my trombone, anyway. Well, now, I wouldn't say that. Peavy! Come <laughs> on, well, let's go, gang. I love Friends till the end, and uh, no one. Th this is a, uh, an odd thing. Even though I had a wife on Fiddler McGee and Molly, uh, she was never heard. She was only referred to. And when I moved to Summerfield and started my own show, we didn't get one letter asking, "What did you do with your wife?" 
Evidently, she didn't make a very big impression, or they realized that this was an entirely new setup. And that, uh, you know... 85, 85, one dollar. Thank you, Ms. Ransom. Oh, you're welcome, Mr. Peavy. Uh, can I serve you in any other way? No, no, that's all. I was, uh, just wondering, do you see much of Mr. Gildersleeve these days? Oh, yes, he comes in every now and then to pass the time of day or to have a soda. Oh, does he, um, have as many sodas as he used to? Hmm, I wonder if there's any question of professional ethics involved here. <laughs> professional ethics? No, I was just thinking out loud, Mrs. Ransom. I, oh. I don't like to violate the confidence of a customer. Oh, you man. I'm just asking about Throckmorton as an old friend. You know that, Mr. Peavy. After all, I was engaged to marry him once. No, of course. Well, I, I think I can safely tell you that he has definitely cut down on his soda. Oh, the poor man. I knew she'd be making him take off some flesh. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Oh, that worries me, Mr. Peavy. Some men have to be fat to be healthy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think Mr. Gildersleeve overdoes it. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, she chased me to the point where that uh, I'd get so interested I'd start chasing her, and then she'd repulse me a little bit, you know. Okay. But she was the very obvious type. Well, he was in reverse. I was engaged to both of them through the show, and, uh, and, uh, but we never got to the point of marriage, you know. Eve had a mother that used to bother me. Yes. <laughs> You're awfully sweet. So are you. <laughs> well, I'll see you before I leave, won't I, Doc Morton? Oh, yes, I'm taking you to the station. <laughs> everything, doesn't he, dear? Well, I'll go and lie down for a little while, if you'll excuse me. Oh, go right ahead, Mother. There's nothing like a little shut-eye. <laughs> I think so, too. But don't you let me oversleep my train now. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> oh, we'll be two little mice. Let's play mouse, Eve. <laughs> How do you play mouse? Well, you're the little mouse. And I try to grab you. Throckmorton, <laughs> oh. <laughs> don't. Don't make any noise. You'll wake up, Mother. But you're taking unfair advantage. All's fair in love and war. <laughs> oh, for I try to talk very quietly. Hello? Oh, yes, this is she. Yes, please. Thank you very much. Who's that? It was a telegram from my brother Fred. Fred? He's all right, isn't he? Oh, yes, he's all right. He's just got a commission in the Seabees, and he's on his way to Washington. But your mother? She'll just have to live here, dear. With us. She... I can't seem to get to sleep. It's all right, Mother. You might as well stay up now. <laughs> I'm getting a kick out of getting tapes now, you know, from people who save them. Um, I have one here that somebody sent me recently, and it's a Christmas show. And um, I remember we had a great uh, amount of mail on it. Was, and I read a poem called Why the Chimes Rang. And I didn't have a copy of it until recently, and I recently got one. As a matter of fact, I have two of them now. And uh, at the time, we were just flooded with the requests for, for this poem. And it was written by somebody, and it was a published piece, and so we, uh, of course, recommended that they buy the book, you know, and all that sort of thing. I guess we helped the fellow a great deal, because I think we got about 4,000 letters, which was un a very unusual thing, you know, especially around the holidays. Some of it wouldn't reach me in February. Yeah. Dr. Olson could never top this. I'll walk in on Catherine, pass out these toys to her little kitties, and tell her this is my Christmas present to her. What can she say except that I'm the greatest guy in the world? The kids will get a kick out of it, too. <laughs> in turn, turn in your suit. Hey, this must be the ward. I see some children there. Well, hello, little children. Hello. Hello. Where is uh, Miss Milford? She'll be back. She went to get orange juice. Oh, well, I'll just put these packages down here and wait. Are you Santa Claus? 
Me? Nah, he's not Santa Claus. He hasn't got a white beard. But he's nice and fat. <laughs> yeah, but he's not Santa Claus. Santa Claus never comes around here. Uh, now, wait a minute, young fellow. I'm uh, sort of a Santa Claus. I brought all these presents to you children. For us? Honest and truly? Oh, boy. You see, Stuffy, he is Santa Claus. <laughs> oh, boy, I gotta come over and see them. Stuffy's lucky. He's in a wheelchair. Oh, well, I'll bring the presents around to your little beds when Miss Milford comes. I want to open mine. Now, now, wait a minute, Stuffy. You shouldn't open presents until Christmas. I don't want to open mine until Christmas. I just want to dream about what's in them. Uh, that's the idea, little girl. While we're waiting for Miss Milford, will you read us a Christmas story? A uh, Christmas story? That's what she was doing. Yeah, they're in that book. Oh, well, I like stories. I used to read them to my niece and nephew. Let's see what we've got here. Why the Chimes Rang by Raymond McDonald Alden. I like that one. I don't know it. Well, I've been in the hospital longer than you have. <laughs> yes. Well, let's read it, huh? We don't have much time. Once upon a time, in a faraway country, there was a wonderful church. It stood on a high hill in the midst of a great city. And every Sunday, as well as on sacred days like Christmas, thousands of people climbed the hill to its great archways, looking like lines of ants, all moving in the same direction. I don't allow ants in the hospital. Stop interrupting, Stuffy. Yeah, must listen, Stuffy. <laughs> now, all the people knew that at the top of the tower was a chime of Christmas bells. They had hung there ever since the church had been built, and they were the most beautiful bells in the world. Some described them as sounding like angels far up in the sky. Others as sounding like strange winds singing through the trees. But for many years, they had never been heard. Why didn't the bells ring? Well, we're coming to that, I guess. It was said that people had been growing less careful of their gifts for the Christ child, that no offering was brought which was fine enough to deserve the music of the chimes. Every Christmas Eve, people still crowded to the altar, each one trying to bring some gift better than any other. Why did they do that? Well, for personal reasons, I guess. They were trying to make a big impression. Oh. Mm -hmm. Now, where were we? Oh, yes. Now, a number of miles from the city, in a little country village, lived a boy named Pedro and his little brother. They had heard of the service in the church on Christmas Eve and planned to go see the beautiful celebration. Nobody can guess, little brother, Pedro would say, all the fine things there are to see and hear. And I'd even heard it said that the Christ child sometimes comes down to bless the service. What if we should see him? The day before Christmas... Pedro and little brother were able to slip away quietly, and although the walking was hard in the frosty air, before nightfall they had trudged so far, hand in hand, that they saw the lights of the big city just ahead of them. They were about to enter one of the great gates in the wall that surrounded it, and they saw something dark on the snow near their path, and they stepped aside to look at it. What was it? Well, let's see. There by the path was a poor woman who had fallen in the snow, too sick and tired to get in where she might have found shelter. Oh. Pedro knelt down beside her. You will have to go on alone, little brother, he said. Alone, cried little brother. But you will not see the Christmas festival. No, said Pedro. And he could not keep back a bit of a choking sound in his throat. See this poor woman? Her face looks like the Madonna in the chapel window. And she'll freeze to death if nobody cares for her. But I can't bear to leave you and go on alone, said little brother. Both of us need not miss the service, said Pedro. And it had better be I than you. You can easily find your way to the church. And you must see and hear everything twice, little brother. Once for you and once for me. And oh, if you get a chance, little brother, to slip up to the altar without getting in anybody's way, take this little silver piece of mine and lay it down for my offering when no one is looking. In this way, he hurried little brother off to the city and winked hard to keep back the tears as he heard the crunching footsteps sounding farther and farther away in the twilight. The great church was wonderful that night. When the organ played and the thousands of people sang, the walls shook with the sound. And little Pedro, way outside the city wall, felt the earth tremble around him. At the close of the service came the procession 
for the offerings to be laid on the altar. Rich men and great men marched proudly up to lay down their gifts to the Christ child. Some brought wonderful jewels. Some brought baskets of gold. But the chimes did not ring. And last of all came the king of the country, hoping with all the rest to win for himself the chime of the Christmas bells. There went a great murmur through the church as the people saw the king take from his head the royal crown, all set with precious stones, and lay it gleaming on the altar as his offering to the holy child. Surely, everyone said, we shall hear the bells now, for nothing like this has ever happened before. But still, only the cold old wind was heard in the tower, and the people shook their heads, and some of them said as they had said before, that they never really believed the story of the chimes and doubted if they ever rang at all. Suddenly, everyone looked at the old minister who was standing by the altar, holding up his hand for silence. Not a sound could be heard from anyone in the church. But as all the people strained their ears to listen, there came softly but distinctly, swinging through the air, the sound of the chimes in the tower. So far away and yet so clear the music seemed, so much sweeter were the notes than anything that had been heard before, rising and falling away up there in the sky, that the people in the church sat for a moment as still as though something held each of them by the shoulders. And they all stood up together and stared straight at the altar to see what great gift had awakened the long, silent bell. But all that the nearest of them saw was the childish figure of little brother, who had crept softly down the aisle when no one was looking and had laid Pedro's little piece of silver on the altar. That's a wonderful story. Why did the bells ring when his little brother laid the piece of silver on the altar? Well, then... Why didn't they ring when the great men brought jewels and things? Well, like the book said, each one was trying to bring some gift better than any other. Those men were trying to outdo each other. While little Pedro gave out of the goodness of his heart. He didn't have an ulterior motive. What's an ulterior motive? Well, I guess that's what I had when I came here. That's a snowflake coming. It is? Yeah. Well, I uh, guess I'll be going. Aren't you going to wait and see our nurse? Where are you going, mister? Well, I think I'll sneak out this side door. But I'll see you who brought the present. Well, that's not important anymore. Merry Christmas. Thanks. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I'll tiptoe down the back stairs. Five o'clock. I didn't know the hospital had chimes. Great Gildersleeve is played by Harold Perry. The show was written by Paul West, John Elliott, and Andy White, with music by Jack Meekin. In addition to our regular cast, you heard Ann Whitfield and Stuffy Singer as the children in the hospital. Good night, folks. See you next week. the Bank, radio's biggest money-paying show, is next on NBC. Reminiscing, I feel you near, once more you're my love of yesteryear. next week for another nostalgic look at Radio of Yesteryear.
And now it's just about time we were picking up our members and moving along our way. I hope you've enjoyed listening to these songs and the memories that go with them as much as I've enjoyed bringing them to you. And I'll be keeping my weather eyes peeled. Yes, sir. Looking for you all to join us the next time we drop around this way for a friendly little get-together. And I hope that'll be real soon, folks. And until then, this is your old friend, Singin' Sam, saying goodbye for now. Same Time, Same Station is produced for KRLA News by John Price. Associate Producer, Cam Courier. Special Research by Martin Halperin. Our thanks to Harold Perry, who took time from his busy schedule as spokesman for Gibraltar Savings and Loan Association to reminisce with us tonight. Next week, the drama of Favorite Story and the comedy of Fred Allen. I know you won't want to miss it, so be sure to be with us next week at this same time, same station. You had the beginning to our Gildersleeve special, originally heard on January 26th, 1971. For Mervis Diamond importers, I'm Ronnie Mervis. Nothing will flatter her more than Mervis Diamond ear studs. She'll wear them every day. It's the one essential she'll never take off. Mervis Diamond ear studs are classic. They're the ideal accessory. Our studs are brighter and flash more. That's my guarantee. It's the world-famous Mervis quality which creates that blaze of light. Mervis Diamonds are so brilliant, it's rude not to stare. Mervis proudly shows the most diamond ear studs. We offer all sizes and prices. Starting at just $500 for gorgeous half carats, our unrivaled collection includes studs from modest to truly grand. The amazing thing is the Mervis value, which makes our diamond ear studs so affordable. For the rest of time, you can trade up your Mervis diamond ear studs for larger, and we'll apply the full purchase price. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Just bring your studs back whenever you're in the mood and keep moving up. All you pay is the difference. Mervis Diamond Importers. For diamond ear studs, she can't live without. Financing is available. For stores, go to MervisDiamond.com. Again, that's MervisDiamond.com or call 1-800-HER-LOVE. Ah, feel the whoa with Listerine at BJ's. You can save $2.50 now on Listerine products like Total Care Anti-Cavity Fluoride Fresh Mint Mouthwash or Cool Mint Pocket Packs Fresh Breath Strips at your nearest BJ's location. Experience the feeling of a million germs zapped in seconds with Listerine. Discount available through December 24th. Save now only at BJ's. 